Hello, this is Pastor Ariel with a new series of Devotional. Welcome again. We just finished a series on how to be happy, and now we're going to be on episode one on a series entitled Pray ER. Welcome back to this uh, platform of devotional, a resource that I want to make available for my friends, my church family, anyone really who would like to have some basic spiritual guidance in some of the things that make us uh, draw closer to God. Uh, We just finished the series on happiness, uh, the eight paths to happiness according to how Jesus uh, displayed them. And now we're going to be going into a new series entitled Prayer ER, the emergency room of prayer. I think uh, probably my nursing background has a lot to do with (laughs) the content and uh, maybe the title of this uh, new series. But for me personally, even as a pastor now, I struggle with sometimes understanding the, the ins and outs, the nuts and bolts of prayer. And so we want to look at uh, some things that the Bible says, uh, especially what Jesus has to say about prayer. And uh, I want to start with Matthew chapter 6, which if you were uh, already listened to the previous series, you know that we were just in Matthew chapter 5. The very next chapter, after Jesus deals with how to be happy, I think he wants to focus on the maintenance of that happiness. And that maintenance has a lot to do with our connection with God. And so prayer, I think, is the most effective and intimate way we can be connected to God. And Jesus answers our questions in regards to prayer. And I think it's interesting how he begins. I'm going to be reading from Matthew chapter 6 and verse 5. And I almost forgot to mention, yes, I am again walking (laughs) with my little girl in uh, the neighborhood. Uh, it is a little bit chillier now in Michigan. Winter tends to come a little early, but it's still a nice weather to go and take a stroll. Hope you do the same. Maybe you can listen to these as you go and get some good exercise outside. So, where to begin with prayer? I think Jesus gives some of the most practical and simple instructions, and it's interesting where he, st- he starts. I've read several books on prayer, how to pray, etc., And they're always focusing on the do's. Do this, do that. You know how Jesus begins? With what we shouldn't do. And I think there's a reason for that. Matthew chapter 6 verse 5 begins saying, And when you pray, you shall not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the corners of the streets, that they may be seen by men. As surely I say to you, they have their reward. But you, when you pray, go into your room, and when you have shut your door, pray to your Father who is in the secret place, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. Now this is a very interesting way to start a how-to, this is how you should start praying, Uh, don't do this. (laughs) But why would Jesus start with don't? You know what that makes me think of when God spoke audibly 
for the first time in a long time in a place called Mount Sinai, giving one of the most well-known document uh, that is in the Bible, one that the Bible says God wrote himself with his finger, and uh, a movie was made called by that document, the Ten Commandments, you guessed it. The Ten Commandments also have instruction based on you will not, do not. You will not have any other gods before me. Why would Jesus begin prayer also with you will not? Well, I think for me, at least, the significance lies in the fact that Jesus knows us. He knows what we are prone to. And so in the Ten Commandments, God knows our propensity is to worship what we see, what is tangible to us. It is difficult for us to extend our faith to something we is mysterious to us, is, is not known, is not seen, can't be tasted or smelled or touched. And God forbade the Israelite nation to making any kind of graven image unlike their counterparts. And it wasn't the, com- the command really wasn't to make any graven image because God explicitly told Moses to make angels, to make palm trees, pomegranates. But the one being they were not uh, allowed to create any physical representation was the deity. And in any of that, whether it was trees or fruits or these beings, uh, these seraphims, these angels, they were not to bow down to anything. God knew our propensity to worship what we see. And so when God gives us the direction of prayer, He begins with, don't be like a hypocrite. Now, for us, a hypocrite, that word carries uh, a lot of loaded meaning. Uh, but in the time of Christ, it was actually a title of, uh, of people that were admired, actually. The actual Greek word means actor, someone who would act in plays. They were called hypocrites because they were not being themselves. Which, yes, that's exactly what we mean when we call someone a hypocrite. We have someone pretending to be something that they are not. But today, the irony is uh, that we hold actors in very high esteem, individuals that pretend to be superheroes, to pretend to be doctors, heroic, brave individuals who in real lives are just as broken and miserable as we are. And Jesus says, uh, this is what human beings are prone when it relates to communicating to the deities, the the gods we make. The gods we make are just like us. They are one moment this way, and then the moment they are impatient, anger outburst. Read a little Greek mythology and you'll see the dysfunctionality of the deities. Now in the Hebrew Bible, you have a different picture of God. And God does not want to be associated with the dysfunctional echoes of humanity. In psychology, we call it projection. When you see in other individuals traits that actually belong to you. And that is, I think, what you see a lot of in idolatry, is projecting. We project to the gods parts of ourselves, the things about ourselves that we either like or despise. So you have gods that are heroic, you know, that do brave, courageous things. And then you have gods that are, you know, bad. They're selfish, greedy, traitors, 
uh, liars. Uh, and I think both, all of that reflects on us, on our society. Greek mythology reflects more on Greeks than on the deities. And that is, that is across the board. The Inca uh, theology, the way that they related to the gods, the gods that they worshipped, reflected more on their society. Uh, the deities were a mirror expression of how they viewed their society. But God is a mystery to the Israelite nation. He is not to be made into a bull or a calf as they did at Mount Sinai through the Egyptian influence. This God cannot be even be made into the image of a human. Um, there is nothing in creation that could be likened to Him. Um, and if, if we were to make a graven image of it, we would worship it. I mean, God sees how fragile we are. There's a story in the Old Testament that the children of Israel was continually bickering and complaining against this God that they really couldn't see, always shrouded in darkness and clouds, uh, in light, but they couldn't really see Him, not like the pagan gods, that they could see their form in the temples. Well, they, they began to complain and quarrel and rebel, and so God removes His protection. They don't realize where they're at. They're in the wilderness, and the wilderness doesn't mean that there's nothing there. It just means that it's a very inhospitable place to be at. Very little water, very little food, and the animals that live there are always hungry, always on the lookout for a meal. And here's several people with a lot of flesh and a lot of blood, a lot of animals. And the Bible re registers that there were these fiery serpents that went all through the camp. And the people began to realize their, their uh, ingratitude and rebellious hearts. And so they cry out. And God has pity and compassion and mercy. And the instructions were to Moses to create this bronze serpent. God says, I'm going to use this opportunity as a teaching moment. And not just for the present, but for the future. I'm going to leave a symbol. And Jesus uses this symbol in the Gospel of John. When he alludes to Moses, or references to Moses, lifting up the brazen serpent, so must the Son of Man be raised up. And if he be lifted up, he would attract all men to himself. Well, that's what God wanted, to have one more symbol. The rock that water flowed from in the Old Testament was supposed to be a symbol of Christ, the rock through which the water of life flows to satisfy our needs, etc. There were countless, the theologians call those types, which really means your symbols that were, became part of prophecy, symbolic prophecy. So now this brazen serpent is created and the people who look at it and are healed. That's what God said. If you look at it, you will be healed. And people thought it was way too simple. There's, there's got to be a catch and there was none. And those that simply chose by faith to look upon this brazen ser uh, serpent, serpent made out of bronze, did not die. Now they kept it. And several centuries later, they began to burn incense to it. They began to pray to the serpent. They totally missed the point. They totally frustrated what God was trying to teach them. I think that's one of the reasons Jesus didn't leave anything behind. He didn't tell or instruct the disciples to build a little shrine around His tomb or to uh, secure the cross where He was crucified as a memento of His love. Um, during the medieval ages, during those centuries, there were uh, Martin Luther, 
a Roman Catholic monk going to Rome says that there were enough pieces of the cross to make several thousand crosses, meaning you had so many counterfeits, people selling what they claim to be pieces of the cross so that they could be used as amulets, that somehow you could be protected, that somehow prosperity would accompany you if you were to purchase a piece of the, rock of Christ, of the cross of Christ. And of course, they also had the accompanying nails. Um, all of that broke Luther's heart and frustrated him. And I think that's just him in, in a very small way expressing God's heart as he's trying to get us to understand him and how to approach him. And Jesus, as he's going to teach us how to pray, begins with warning us, making us to look at that which will prevent us from approaching him for who he is. We don't have to be someone we are not. That's, I think, extremely encouraging, extremely welcoming. Here's a God, a God that knows you intimately, a God that you should not try to figure out what does he want me to say? What does he want me to look like? He already knows the depths of each of us. What he wants is an open approach, an approach in which we recognize that we will not be turned away. A knowledge that he is not a, a human being, a fallen human being, which will judge based on externals or internals. He is in love with the human race, broken, selfish, and proud as we are. He loves us. That's what John 3.16 says, that he loved the world so much. He gave the most precious and unique, one-of-a-kind possession, his only begotten son, so that anyone that believes does not perish but have everlasting life. So when we pray, we need to guard ourselves. What do I say to him? What am I talking about to him? Are there things that really matter to me? I remember being confronted long ago and me asking questions to my family. When we would uh, have family prayer and I would hear a prayer of, you know, and bless all the hungry children of the world. And I began to think, do I care about the hungry children of the world? No, I, I'm just hoping that I get the bicycle that I want for my birthday. And I began to realize, that's me. And I would feel like, well, I can't say that to God because then God will say, well, you're so self-centered, you're so selfish. All you can think about is this bike. When there are children in this world eating out of sewages, you don't care about those kids? Oh, of course, Jesus. Please bless them. Please care for them. And Jesus would say, well, there's hungry children around the neighborhood where you live. If you're asking me to bless, would you be willing me to send you? See, that's the problem with actors. We are so worried about the audience. And when it comes to God, He is a one audience that does not want us to deceive ourselves. You know, there's an actor, my mom told me, back in her day, and this is, I'm not, I'm not going to say it because I get in trouble with my mom. Uh, not too long ago, <laughs> my mom said that there was a guy that was, I think, the original Tarzan. Played the, the, the role of Tarzan. And according to my mom, from what she remembers in the news, this, uh, this actor became so identified with his role as Tarzan, he began to actually think he was. And he was institutionalized because he acted and thought he was convinced he was Tarzan. 
you know, you can act uh, enough a part that you actually think you are what you're not. And that's the concern of God. That's His fear that we will so think we are concerned about the hungry children of the world that uh, we think we actually think we are. It's like uh, friends in Facebook that post, you know, I, I am sad to see whatever on a video. And all of a sudden, because I pressed a button, I am compassionate and kind and gentle, merciful and pitiful because I pressed a button, an icon. Um, that is not who I am. I am compassionate when I do share a, some, some of the food, when I do share the things that God blesses with me, me with. Not when I don't do nothing. When I, it's like an actor. An actor, you know, I, I used to think, wow, you know, this, this guy jumps off buildings and lands inside his car. His hair doesn't get messed up and he punches the evil guy right in the face and every bullet he shoots kills 20 bad guys. Wow, I want to be like him. When in real life, that guy, you know, would be screaming and crying if he were to be left in the neighborhoods that I grew up in. So, for, for what it's worth, who am I? Prayer begins with a confrontation of the self. Do not be like an actor. Do you even know what you would say to me without masks? Are you willing to take the masks in front of me? I believe Jesus is doing this not to embarrass anyone, but rather so that we learn something that takes, I think, not an instant. I don't think prayer is something that, for us at least in our own experience, we will thrive at immediately. Um, some people, of course, enjoy it and, amen, continue, press on. But as you begin to get acquainted with the principles and the purposes behind prayer, you begin to realize this is a painful confrontation of who I really am versus who I think I am. When Jesus says, don't be as a hypocrite, I think in my personal uh, thoughts, as I look at the rest of Scripture, He is addressing the first manifestation of sin in the human heart. When Adam and Eve sinned, the first thing that they did not do is start a heroin factory or a prostitution ring. The first thing they did is simply hide. They hid from God. And in the process of hiding from God, they tried to hide something specific about themselves, their nakedness. So when God comes to them, the question is not, what have you done? The question to Adam and Eve is, where are you? Where are you? And God does not ask that question because He needed to know where they were. He needed to ask that question because Adam and Eve did not know where they were. They were hiding from the one that loved them. Why? Why? They were clothing their nakedness. And God addresses that. I mean, it's Adam speaking almost like my one-year-old, my six-year-old. My one-year-old doesn't speak with words yet, but she definitely communicates with us. Adam lets it slip. I was afraid when I heard your voice because I was naked. And then God says, who told you you were naked? It's so gentle when you look at it and think about what this dialogue. God is so gentle. 
He's not saying, I know what you've done, you rascal. Get over here. When I find you, he's not talking like that at all. His questions are not for himself. His questions are desperate attempts to break through the masks, the layers, the acting that is beginning to take place within the human heart. At the core of the mask, at the core of this uh, acting is pride. Pride cannot bear the thought of accountability, of owning what we've done. Pride cannot endure the searching eye of God that sees past our excuses and justifications, which is exactly what Adam was giving to God. The, the leaves that they used to cover themselves were a, um, an echo, a representation of the words he was speaking. He was trying to camouflage his behaviors, his choices, and passing the book, not to Eve, but to God. Because that's what Adam said, the woman whom you gave to me, she gave me of the tree and I ate. He's not blaming Eve, he's blaming God. And that's um, a big, huge topic that we could even spend a lot of time on. But right now, we need to go back to Jesus' admonition. When you pray, ask yourself, what, am I praying about what really interests me? Or am I saying words that I think God wants me to say? When I pray, do I talk about what's really important to me right now? Or am I embarrassed to bring these things to God? Are they not sufficiently Christian? So by no means, I'm not saying, yes, come to the Lord and say, you know, Lord, help me to find the winning lottery ticket. If that's how you really feel, yes, you should talk to the Lord about it. But in the dialogue with God, when we bring to Him the realities of where we are and who we are, now God has, got, now God has something to work with. In the book of Revelation, in chapter 3, the last church that Jesus addresses is called the Church of Laodicea. In this church, um, Jesus, his great, if you could say, use the word frustration, and not in a negative sense of he's had it, but a frustration of why can't you understand what I'm saying? Why can't you understand your condition? This church would say, I am rich and in need of nothing. And yet Jesus says that this church is naked and it's blind to its nakedness. And because it's naked, it's miserable. Have you ever had those dreams when, when you wake up and you're at either a school or at your job or something and you don't have all the clothing you wish you did? Um, psychologists will theorize and you know it means this or whatever. All I'm gonna focus is on, if you have ever had those dreams, I've had those, have you ever, do you remember what it felt like? It was a nightmare, right? It was a fearful nightmare that someone would see us without coverings. God doesn't want us to be afraid. He takes that fear away from us. How does he do that? We'll talk about that when we come back in just one bit. There is uh, this controlling factor in pride, the, the fear of uh, being caught and being known for who you are. There's a verse in 1 John chapter 5 that says, perfect love casts out fear. There is no fear in love because perfect love 
casts out fear. Now, there's a way in which God has um, helped us, met us where we are in regards to this fear of being found out. And I think to some degree you have some, and please don't take this as ultimate and this is absolute, but if we were to group individuals that would think of themselves as spiritual, specifically Christians, I would, I think, see them in two groups. Those that don't pray at all and those that pray superficially and both of them have the same reasons for doing so. Those that don't pray are afraid. They are afraid of God. And those that pray superficially are afraid. They are afraid of God. So they stay on the surface level. Superficial things, jobs, boyfriends, girlfriends, etc. And things that don't really, um, really interest or really reflect who they are, what they find within themselves. They are terrified to look inside because they will see they're naked. So when we have this uh, fear, what God tells us is we shouldn't be afraid because there's something we will find that will shock us in a pleasant way when we come to pray to God. And 1 John didn't simply say love. He called it perfect love. What is that perfect love? We'll look at that as we conclude this first uh, episode on Pray ER. So perfect love, where is this perfect love? And how in the world does it get to cast that uh, fear out of us? The fear that is you know, engendered by pride, the fear of being found that uh, we, <laughs> we are naked. Now, the way God does this is amazing. Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden were naked and ashamed. And God pronounces a curse upon them, upon the earth. But the curse in the Hebrew is such a beautiful nuance. Um, the only translation in English that I know that captures that nuance is the King James. When it says that the earth has been cursed for your sake. There's a benevolent loving purpose behind the thorns growing in the plants and the sweat of the brow. And actually, what is translated as sweat is the same word that God pronounces on the woman when he says that you will give birth in pain. It's the same word for pain, birth pain, in which they will bring children in birth pains and as they would try to produce and uh, live off the land, it would also um, be done through birth pains. All of this, all of that imagery of nakedness, thorns and birth pains, uh, when someone gives birth, you know, there's the, the water and the blood present. The, the, the woman breaks the water. And I remember with both my girls, um, Daniel was giving birth. He, there was, you know, the water broke. And then soon later would come my little girl and covered were the amniotic fluid, which is used to be called the water. And then, of course, blood. That imagery of nakedness, thorns, blood and water, birth pains. All of them should be evoking to you one image and one image only, the cross. At the cross, you have all of those elements blended. Most painters, uh, even those controversially reverent ones that want to be disrespectful to the Christian faith, have not been bold enough, and I'm not challenging them to do this either, uh, I definitely don't want someone trying to do something like this because 
I think it would just hurt them. It wouldn't, it would, the offense for me would be that they are damaging their own conscience. But not, no artist, uh, even Mel Gibson in his movie, The Passion of the Christ, who was so graphic with the violence, even he did not dare to portray Christ on the cross as he really was. All painters, artists, and uh, movie directors, movie producers, when they have made the cross, they always put at least loincloths on the actor, on the painting of the Christ. But the Bible says that Jesus hung naked. He's hung in the fullness of our shame. He took our shame, our nakedness. On His head were placed crown of thorns, and from His side flowed blood and water. This is perfect love. This is why you should not be afraid to pray to God. He has taken your shame upon Himself, and He wants to remove that from you. You know, in the Garden of Eden, once Adam and Eve were sure that they were going to meet with God's wrath and punishment and, and uh, just being destroyed, what they found themselves was with God trying to teach them something. And it's a very short verse. Many people miss it because it's just so brief, but it's so rich. It says that God clothed Adam and Eve with skins, animal skins. Now, from the very beginning, God was trying to show humanity that so that humanity's shame, the nakedness of our rebellion and pride and self-centeredness, that that would be healed, that would be transformed. We would be transformed from actors to real children of God. And that is the covering. In order for Adam and Eve to have been covered with skins, the animal was left bleeding and naked. The animal was um, killed and his hide was taken off so that the animal now died, perished naked. And because of that, Adam and Eve could now experience the opposite of shame. Have you ever thought about what that is? What the opposite of shame is? Um, you might think respect. Uh, is someone that is being thought of as noble. But I think the Bible would want us to maybe link the opposite of shame with being perfectly loved, perfectly valued. Because in order for God to do this, there must have been a, a sense of value for, for Him to do this for us. It was, God wasn't trying to be flashy or showy. Oh, look at who I am. He truly did not want to lose the human race. And though he knew what our destiny entailed, he took that destiny in full for us. So when you and I are invited to pray, Jesus warns us, don't start with me with the way that you start with your idols. I am nothing like them. There is no religion on this planet beside Christianity in which the deity we are called to worship takes on the human shame to its fullest and pays for all the penalty. That is an invitation of complete acceptance. I don't want you to be an actor because I want you to know that I accept you the way you are. 
I don't want you to come to me pretending and acting because I already know you and I already love you. In fact, as we looked at in a previous episode, he loved you the way Jeremiah 31.3 says, he has loved you with an everlasting love. So my friend, start praying. God loves you and he wants you to experience your real self being perfectly loved so that that perfect love can cast out any fear you may have of him. Until the next episode, God bless.